Hello and welcome to The Whole Life, the podcast that seeks to connect the Christian story with, well, just about everything. I'm Grace Fielding. And I'm Paul Woolley. And today we're talking about being yourself. We live in a culture that's obsessed with the self. People talk and actually are encouraged to talk about themselves all the time, whether it's express yourself, be kind to yourself, look after yourself. But what does it mean to be yourself? And is this actually healthy? How can the Christian story help us work out who we are? And then how does this shape our everyday lives and work? Well, joining us to discuss these questions is Graham Tomlin, director of the brilliant Centre for Cultural Witness. Graham is a theologian, a teacher, a writer. He was Bishop of Kensington from 2015 to 2022 and was deeply involved in the church's response to the Grenfell Tower fire. He is author of Why Being Yourself is a Bad Idea and Other Countercultural Notions. Graham, it is great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Paul. Hi, Grace. Very nice to be with you today and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Graham. So I wonder if we could start off um, just thinking about um, this sort of self-obsessed culture that we find ourselves in. Um, And I wonder, has this always been the case? And if not, how did we get to where we are today? Um, No, is a simple answer. It hasn't always been the case. And uh, we are in a very different place now than where we have been, I think, as a culture in the past. In fact, I mean, one way of putting it is um, I kept, there was a sort of hinge, I guess, in culture, probably about, you know, sort of two, three hundred years ago. Um, and uh, it's what um, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the subjective turn in modern culture. And I guess what he has in mind is that in, in, in the kind of ancient world, uh, you know, where, where did you go to find sort of truth, identity, a sense of who you are, what's kind of been a moral power to get things done? You, you kind of looked outside yourself. So Plato, for example, looks outside himself to the eternal forms, to these ideas that that sort of are, that are kind of there on some metaphysical plane above us. And for him, you know, everything on earth is a kind of copy of these eternal forms. And so, in other words, you look outside yourself. If you're a Platonist, you go and meditate in the, the countryside or on beaches or whatever. You can look outside yourself to find the truth. And in the Christian faith, or you know, you look outside yourself to God. If you look in, if you're a, um, you know, if you're a, uh, there are different religions. Obviously, religions like Christianity or Islam or Judaism look outside themselves to God. Other um, religions like sort of Buddhism or Taoism or whatever might look at look outside themselves to the the moral law. Or you know, Confucianism looks at a kind of you know structure of reality outside yourself. That was kind of the way thing people saw things in the past. But I guess with this shift that happened. You know, two or three hundred years ago, there's a sort of shift towards the self, and so you have people like Descartes, you know, thinking, okay, where do I find bedrock? Where can I find truth? And he comes up with his great famous dictum, you know, cogito ergo sum. There, I think, therefore, I am. You know, you look inside yourself to the thinking self to find out a truth about the world. You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is some, again a European philosopher who thinks actually civilization is is harmful. You know, you don't look outside yourself to kind of the cosmic order. You look inside yourself in introspection. You know, the whole romantic movement was all about, you know, inner feelings are telling you what was really true about the world. And so we are now a, a culture that tends to look inside ourselves to find out who we are, what is the truth about the world. Uh, whereas in the past in culture, we've tended to look outside ourselves a bit more. And that's something that's happened, I think. Mm, so interesting and, and sort of just hearing a little bit about where some of those shifts have come from and maybe who were the kind of the mm. people that have inspired us or maybe not inspired us for the better in that sense um so if we think about then now we are in this sort of age of this mm. um emphasis on self in our culture um obviously there are um probably not so good things about that and potentially some maybe positive things we've learned um as well so I wonder if you could maybe speak to sort of both sides of the coin mm. in that sense mm. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are positive things about uh, that turn towards the self. I mean, yeah, you, I, I would often think for if, if you if we if we were suddenly time travelled back into the Middle Ages, we we probably would find it quite a maybe a little bit of a stifling environment to live in. Sometimes, you know, a lot of sense of conformity, hierarchy, social hierarchy within which you had to fit. You knew your place within the cosmic order, and there were some good things, but maybe not so, not so good things about that. And there's a sense about you know our sense of individuality now allows for a great deal more sort of individual freedom than than people had in the past. And I guess in more recent history, we've seen in 
movements in the 20th century, fascism, Nazism, you know, of, of um, you know, of or of, of um, you know, communism as well. A kind of very controlled sense where the individual fits into a broader social program where the individual doesn't really matter that much. And we sort of saw the results of that in, you know, in um, Pol Pot's Cambodia or in sort of you know Hitler's Germany or in in Mao's China. Um, so you know, a totally conformist where every individual has to conform and totally to like a broader system. It's not ideal either, but there's something. But on the other hand, the things that, that maybe are not so healthy about our current obsession with the self is that it, it, it focuses our attention in the wrong place where it comes to to wisdom. And, and even the kind of very ordinary things about life. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, um, uh, when I was quite a lot younger than I am today, um, hmm. you know, go, going out on a date with a um, with a with a with a, um, with a girl. And, and I, I, can, I can remember, you know, you, what happens when you do something like that or when you're kind of going to you know, to sort of go out for an interview and you're, you're meeting someone that you want to impress and you ask them, you know, what's your advice? And they will say the usual thing, you know, just, just be yourself. It's fine. As yeah. if it was that simple. Um, and I can still remember, you know, going out on a date with a girl when you're 16, the last thing you want to do is to be yourself. Cause, <laughs> cause if I can remember, you know, thinking, well, if, if she kind of knows all the little sort of jealousies and anxieties and fears and lusts and everything else that are going on inside my head, there won't be a second date. Um, yeah. And so actually, and in some ways, you know, when you meet someone who is all they're doing is thinking about themselves, they're not a very good, fun person to be with. The best people are people who are not not sort of obsessed with themselves. They're more interested in you. And so actually the advice, you know, be yourself in every environment. In other words, look inside, um, think about your own self all the time. It's just not very good advice, it seems to me. And just in just in the ordinary manners of, uh, of life as we go about things. Yeah, so it's almost like, I, I guess, you know, we're sort of told, aren't we, that life is often about finding ourself and then living in that true self. But actually, maybe there are issues with that. Um, and I think you mentioned, you know, obviously some people look to find themselves in whether it's religion um, or maybe other ideas. And so I wonder, especially here in the West, um, where would you say some of the kind of key places are that people um, are looking to get their answers on this kind of journey, um, whether it's healthy or not, but to discover their kind of, an inverted commas, true self? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can think of a number of things. I mean, one is um, to look at your own inner desires, your own inner sort of longings, and in the sense of, you know, my, my own individuality is found in the particular things I like, the things I like doing, the things that, kind of, that, that, that my sort of heart tells me. It's the theme of every Disney film, you know, follow your heart. Um, yeah. And yet, actually... When I think about my own heart or the hearts of other people, it's a very mixed thing. Some of my desires are probably good and worth following, and some of them certainly aren't. And therefore, follow your heart doesn't seem to me the wisest advice, because my heart is, again, you know, within the Christian scriptures, it says, you know, the heart is a deceitful thing, mm -hmm. um, that our desires are very mixed and very confused a lot of the time, and therefore that's not the best place to go. Again, you know, we have, I guess, the development of identity politics within our society and again that came from a good place i think identity politics came out of sort of movements in sociology in the 1970s and 80s which were trying to identify the common features in in disadvantaged groups and saying well people who are marginalized who've been you know oppressed in various ways have common experiences let's focus on them and help us to understand and overcome that experience through that but what it's become i think is a is a kind of movement whereby you you know you identify one aspect of a person's identity and the fact that they may be you know, black or white or gay or straight or whatever it might be. And, and you say, that's what defines that person. Mm. And therefore, you can either say, you know, because they are that person, I can, I know what they're like, and I can either dismiss them, or I can sort of accept them as one of my tribe. And it just focuses on one aspect of a person's identity. Whereas it seems to me that, you know, as, as people, we are, we all have multiple identities, you know, we have lots of things that are true of us, you know, that we have different nationality backgrounds, we have different ethnicity, we have jobs, we have, you know, football teams that we support, we have, you know, things that are true of us, different sort of religious identities and so on, that we're all a whole mix of multiple identities and fixing on one part of a person's identity and saying that's the thing that matters about them more. And even, you know, even the way we self-project ourselves, it's a bit deceptive to say, well, that one thing, that's the only thing you need to understand about me or the only thing I need to understand about you. And therefore, it's a kind of failure to love someone because it seems to me love is about understanding someone in all their complexity. If you really love someone, you'll get to know all the different aspects of their personality, their identity. And so that, those, I think, are some of the ways in which we kind of make some errors when we get to this, look into this issue of what it means to 
you know, to, to, to find your true self in, in, in our social life. That's all so interesting. And um, we'll come to this in a minute. But this emphasis on love is so interesting, isn't it? Because mm. um, it, there's an irony, isn't it? That there's a kind of emphasis in culture on mm. love, in our culture yep. on love. Um, but that sometimes <laughs> requires us to um, look to others rather than into ourselves. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, we might come to that. And, and the way you mm. describe Plato's life just seems so attractive, the mm. way he's able to sit back and reflect. Um, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that. Um, mm. Graham, talk to us a little bit more about how this plays into politics. You've mm. suggested that this emphasis on ourselves is played out within our political life, mm. uh, whether that's the politics of the left or mm. of the right, it's done in different ways, but mm. underneath all of that, it's kind of the same thing. How mm. is that? How does that work out? Yeah, well, I think if you, I guess, you know, this is a great generalization, I know, but I guess parties on the right of politics will tend to focus on the free market, that the market will effectively bring about what you really want in, in, in life. You, you, you deregulate, you allow, um, uh, you give incentives for businesses to flourish, you kind of a small state, you allow kind of you know, free enterprise to um, to rule the roost and you try to enable the market to, to, to do its work and markets will bring about prosperity in the end. If you're on the left hand, left of the politics, you'll be more suspicious of the market and say, no, no, the state needs to intervene to in because the market on its own will always lead to inequality and great inequalities. And therefore, the state tries to intervene to bring a greater sense of, uh, of equality in, in, um, in society. Um, so if you like, you know, the right trusts in the free market, the left trusts in the state. But actually, when you dig underneath what they're driving at, it's kind of the same thing, I think, underneath, which is that the ideal is the autonomous sort of rights bearing individual free to make their own choices and to thrive in life. Um, it's just that the right thinks the free market is the way to produce that. The left thinks the state is the way to produce that. But they're both basically aiming at the same sort of thing. Um, and in some ways, both of them are aiming at a at a kind of liberation of the self from 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 constraints. You know, so you know, on the on on the right, uh, there's the ideal of the liberation of the individual from state control, um, wanting to kind of free people to be able to kind of pursue their own um, dreams and visions and so on, and without any kind of great legal state government structure controlling them. You know, on on the left, it tends to be, especially these days, more liberation from social taboos of the past um, and past identities that are kind of in, in imposed upon people. But again, underneath it all, it is the vision of the autonomous individual self, you know, free to uh, pursue their own dreams and desires uh, and so on. And so in some ways, both left and right, even though they think of it in different ways, are actually driving at the same thing, which is that sense of kind of free, expressive individualism, which I think is, as I'm beginning to argue, you know, problematic in our culture at the moment so that's why where i think it's it, it plays out in politics and to what extent do you see that played out in the christian story as you were speaking i was thinking of the garden of eden mm. and uh, thinking that adam and eve uh they seem to do precisely this um yeah. instead of looking outward to god um, and acknowledging the fact that they're created in the image of God, but ultimately God is God, um, they start to look inwards. And as they turn inwards, that creates all sorts of problems that ultimately for themselves and for the world are catastrophic. Um, there's an irony, isn't that, isn't there, that the, the Christian story that is often rejected, perhaps it itself if you like contains um exactly what we're describing that, that that we see played out in the christian story at least in the the, the second act of it yeah. um what is going on in our wider culture at this particular point in time i think that's right and a lot of it is um goes back to this question of where, where you find freedom because it seems to me a lot of our contemporary culture is saying to us that freedom is found by casting off the constraints of others um, or constraints of either, as we've been talking, the, the constraints of the state or the constraints of past social taboos, and you'll find freedom if you cast off these things. And that's what Jean-Jacques Rousseau was about, you know, casting off the constraints of civilization and the individual will kind of flourish um, kind of without that. And, you know, if you think of John Stuart Mill with his famous principle of harm, that, um, that you know, we should be free in everything in, other than that which, uh, where we, you know, we're, we're either going to harm ourselves or, or harm other people. Um, 
and the idea that you know um, we should be free to do whatever we choose as long as we don't tread on each other's toes and as long as we don't infringe upon the freedom of someone else. The problem with that, I think, is that that if, if that's your view of freedom, if freedom is freedom from uh, the expectations of other people upon me, what does that do to my relationship with other people? It actually makes them into either a, a, a best a, a restraint, but at worst, a threat to my freedom. It doesn't actually create a relationship with that person. Um, you know, I, I might want to, I don't know, um, drive my car very sort of loud and fast down and down my street. Um, but I can't because I know that, you know, um, the police might step in and sort of stop me doing it. Um, uh, or, or at least, you know, I might want to play my music loud on a sort of summer's night, but I can't because my neighbor doesn't like loud music. And so I then think of my neighbor as a, as a constraint upon my freedom. Um, or it may be that my, my neighbor wants to play their music loud on a summer's night and I don't want them to do it either. So they, you know, it sets up relationships of opposition rather than creating a sense of relationship between us and so i think we have to have a different sort of view of freedom the freedom actually comes not so much from freedom from other people but freedom that is found in the relationship that we create with other people and freedom that comes from being opened out not sort of closed in upon ourselves but opened out towards god and towards our neighbor and that i think ultimately is the christian vision of freedom is freedom being able to love god and to love your neighbor being capable of that kind of relationship rather than someone who is sort of isolated from those things that's amazing. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that and the process of beginning to discover what it is to be truly free, what it is to be truly ourselves, truly alive. You suggest that we start with wonder, which is where Plato and Aristotle began. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, what you mean by that and what that might mean for us? Yeah, there's something about the experience of wonder, which is a very, it's a, it's a kind of universal human experience you know we, we all have those moments when we are when you know in one day you know whether it's when you're you know sort of seeing a, an amazing sunset or a kind of remarkable you know in a concert and the music is just amazing or a sporting activity where you just suddenly see something extraordinary happen there's moments when you know the thing about wonder is you forget yourself entirely you know in those moments when you're looking at the amazing sunset or admiring a piece of skill at football or music or art or whatever you're not thinking about yourself you're just thinking about this amazing thing that you've seen um so what wonder does is it does a couple of things number one it it, it there's a kind of self-forgetfulness in wonder which is if you like the first step towards wisdom it seems to me where you're focused on something outside yourself it draws us out of ourselves but i think the second thing about wonder is that it it makes us think well wh wh why is that thing there at least you that is amazing that that mountain or that sunset or that piece of skill, um, why does it exist? And, you know, and, and it almost makes you imagine a world where it might not have exists, might, might not have existed. And then it, you know, on a sort of philosophical level, it begins to kind of make you realize the, the radical contingency of everything you think, that, that everything you see might not have existed. It might have been that that mountain wasn't there or that sunset wasn't there. And so it starts making you think, well, why is it? And why is there something rather than nothing? And I guess when it comes to thinking about Christian faith, I still I still actually feel, and I know there's all kinds of arguments about it, but that, that argument that um, why is there anything at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is an argument that actually, you know, and I, I read quite a lot of atheists on this, but they really struggle to answer that question. Um, they might say, well, it comes out of some tiny little thing, you know, at the very beginning of, of the kind of chemicals that came together at the beginning of the Big Bang or whatever, but there's always something that gives rise to something. And it seems to me that that when you go back in that chain of being, that everything comes from something else, you've got to find something at the end of the day which is not contingent, which is necessary, which is sort of ontologically just there, which is beginnings of what Christians believe, believe by God. And so I think that's what I think wonder does. It begins to take you out of yourself. It decenters yourself. It makes you aware of something other than yourself which is a step to wisdom. It also makes you wonder why something is there in the first place, which is maybe the beginnings for many people of discovering that there is something, even someone beyond yourself, who gave rise to everything that exists and to whom all thanks and gratitude are due to what, to what we have. Well, let's follow that through and go a little bit deeper into the Christian story. Mm. Um, one of my favorite quotes probably misquotes is Irenaeus the glory of God is seen in a human being fully alive mm. 
Um, if I am seeking to be fully alive, which is not unreasonable, um, presumably mm. that's kind of planted deeply within me somewhere, um, somehow, um, how, how, how does the Christian story give an account for that? How, how can the Christian story help me? Where might it lead me? Mm. Well, I guess the Christian story always centers upon upon Jesus Christ as not just the best example of human life that we could find, you know, just a little bit better than the rest of us, but as, as somehow a revelation of the very heart of things. That's what I think the early Christians were were getting at when they really struggled towards this insight that Jesus Christ was fully divine and fully human at the same time, not half and half, but both that he was the perfect picture of what a human being could and should be like, but also a perfect picture of what God is like. In other words, the heart of reality is like. And, you know, when the early Christians tried to summarize what Jesus told them about the nature of God, they kind of summarized it in three words, that if if God is like Jesus, then God is love. And that was the sort of simplest definition of love that the early Christians could come up with. And really, it's something that is uniquely Christian insight. Um, other religions have things about the love of God, but it's one amongst many qualities. But it's something that the early Christians came back to again and again. And there's something about that that, that kind of fits with our, our nature, I think, as human beings. Because when you think about the way we live, probably most of us, what do we, what do we really long for? We long to love and to be loved. And we thrive when we love and we are loved. If you think of a child growing up without love, they're likely to be a, a quite a disturbed adult. But if they are loved and secure, they're likely to be a, a very kind of well-functioning human being because we we flourish most of all when we when we are capable of love and capability of love comes from being loved. And so that's, I think, where the Christian faith leads us because it gives us a picture of Jesus Christ, this person from whom love just keeps on flowing. And it heals people, it gives people dignity, it loves even to the point of going to a cross for the sake of the people that, that, that God loves. So I think that's where the Christian story takes us. And, and it, if, if that is true, that it says that love is the very, at the very heart of reality, that's what I've got to learn how to, how to do and how to be. Um, and that, again, you know, back to your point, Paul, earlier on about, you know, our society is very fascinated by love, but also is also saying be yourself and you kind of can have one or the other it seems to me that love is something that draws you out of yourself and gives you and there's a sort of self-forgetfulness about love that enables you to love god and to love your neighbor being turned outwards from yourself rather than obsessed with the self so yeah i think that's where it takes us that's uh really helpful insight um graham and not least i have to have this sense that um, love is a, a word that is used quite a lot within our culture. I'm putting together at the moment a little list of um, what I consider to be just meaningless or really unhelpful phrases. And one of those on my list is um, the phrase love is love because um, it's um, utterly meaningless unless it's given definition. And it strikes me what you're saying is that the, the definition of love is seen in the person of Christ. Um, and if that is our definition, I mean, that is a definition that is full of content yeah. and is is also deeply challenging, um, challenges me in terms of then how, how, how I see myself, but also how I see others. Um, really interesting. Lots to reflect on there. Thank you. Mm. I was struck, Graham, when you were talking about this idea of um, sort of the self-forgetfulness and how that can be really helpful when it comes to um, looking outside of ourselves, and um, you sort of specifically spoke about kind of how nature can be really helpful in helping us to do this. And um, just this past weekend, I was in Devon, and it was on Saturday morning. It was you know, it's beautifully clear, crisp day, and the friends we were visiting took us down to this little cove, and there were no people at all apart from mm. us. Um, you know, beautiful sea was literally all we could literally see. Um, and it was just one of those moments where you do you kind of you can't help but just think beyond yourself. And it's, you know, refreshing. And as someone who lives in a city, that it's refreshing for a whole different meaning. But um, but instead, I, I can really relate to what you were saying about actually there is this moment where you, you can't help but forget all of your sort of um, complex ways or, or inward looking tendencies. Um, and I wonder sort of maybe that, that sort of means that nature is something that, that can be really helpful in this for us. Are there any other kind of, I don't know, maybe practices or um, or things that you would suggest that actually give mm. us this this more healthy, um, realistic, and I guess also kind of proportionate view of of mm. our true self. 
Yeah, I think there are a number of things that can do that. I mean, as, as you say, um, regularly, if you like, enabling yourself to, to see. I mean, there's a there's a bit where in the New Testament where um, St. Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, something like, you know, whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, whatever is mm-hmm. pure, um, whatever is of noble repute, think about these things. Yeah. You know, f- focus on those things that are that are really worth thinking about, really worth giving your attention to. Because um, as you say, you know, our, our happiest moments are usually moments where we're not aware of ourselves at all. Yeah. You know, when we're seeing something that is just so extraordinary, so wonderful that you just forget yourself entirely, just just lost in in amazement at it. Um, you know, or, or, or you know, when you're in love with someone, you know, you're just focused on that person. You're not thinking about yourself at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, practices that take you out of yourself. And so, in a, in a Christian sense, one of those is worship. Um, yeah. There's something about going to it, and that whole point of worship is that. You know, how often you do it, you know, if it's on a Sunday, you go to church, the whole point is you take your attention off yourself and you focus upon, upon God. Um, now, I often think, you know, worshipping God, seeing the beauty of God, as the early Christians used to talk about it, is a bit of an acquired taste sometimes. We don't always see the beauty of God. We don't think of God as, a, as an object of beauty, but the early Christians did. Um, but learning to appreciate the beauty of God is something that happens in worship. So prayer, just that regular... You know, daily thing where you get up in the morning and you spend some time um, maybe reading a passage of the Bible, maybe um, praying over your day, praying over the people that matter to you. It's again, it's a way of taking your attention off yourself to think about people that need your attention and prayer and focuses your your, your life in, in, in a different direction. I think there's something else about, I think, the practice of just going to church it sounds terribly ordinary, but there's something about church where you you know in in your average church doesn't have to be a great church but your average church you're very likely to find yourself sitting next to someone who is very different from you and most of our lives we spend with people who are like us um but when you go to church you sit in a pew or a seat and the person next to you might be an elderly person who is struggling to work out how to pay their fuel bills in the winter it might be a kind of you know a sort of professional solicitor who's bringing up a family it might be a kind of teenager who's worried about their tiktok account or it might be a you know a sort of um uh, you know sort of uh, it could be anyone and there's something about that just that the variety of people you encounter that draws you out of yourself and so anything if you like those those sorts of practices the practice of worship the practice of prayer the practice of of being part of a of a community um which is focused upon serving its local community something that takes you out of yourself that's what i think the christian life is about it's about learning those those um, practices of love for God and love for your neighbor that take you out of yourself and therefore paradoxically enable you to discover your true self in relation to other people. That's brilliant. Hmm. Um, Graham, I was um, reflecting as you were talking about, about where where we might see all this leading. I mean, how, how Hmm. does it, how does this all play out? Hmm. Um, And a while ago was, introduced to a little German word that you'll be very familiar with, I'm sure, um, Zenzucht, mm, this, mm. this sort of idea of restlessness, yeah. of, of, of longing for that which isn't there, but mm. a, a desire mm. to sort of return mm. to it. And uh, reflecting on the extent to which that is something that is evident within our culture just now, mm. that mm. for all the emphasis on the self, nonetheless, there is this underlying mm. Mm dissatisfaction and desire for something perhaps that we've lost mm. that, that we seek to return to i'm mm. talking a little bit about that i mean do you do you see that as being there and to the extent that it is or isn't where do you see this mm. playing out in the in the medium to long-term future yeah i think um as you say that and the German word is very evocative, Zehnsucht, you know, it's the longing for things, that restlessness. That's Your pronunciation something. was a lot better than mine. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a correction, yeah, actually, Paul. <laughs> yeah, it was done. You did it very um, graciously. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Well, I just got back from Switzerland, so I'm just surrounded by German. <laughs> We're good. You've been practicing. Very time. good. Um, yeah, I think, I think that restlessness is very strong in our culture, it seems to me, that we're not we're not at ease with ourselves in, in all kinds of ways. And I think it's, and I think a lot of it comes from this, this back to this, this turning inwards again, you know, that if, if the primary advice in our culture is to be yourself, you know, look inside yourself, find out who you really are. It's a very unstable way of looking. It's bound to lead to a restlessness because it's 
it doesn't lead you to the source of real joy and happiness. And one of the, uh, the images I, I used in the book um, was that very often in our, in our culture, we, we think of ourselves a bit like artichokes. Um, I'm no great cook, but I kind of know a little bit about how you cook an artichoke, which is that you, you peel away the leaves on the outside of the artichoke and you find this inner sort of, you know, heart of the artichoke, which is the thing you eat. You know, you strip away all the external bits and you find this in, in this delicious inner core. And we kind of think of ourselves as a bit like that, that, you know, we, you can strip away all the expectations that other people have on you, all the relationships that you're supposed to have, all your identities, you know, you'll find your inner self, as it were. Um, but I guess the question is, you know, what if we're not so much artichokes, but we're onions? Um, at the point of an onion, when you strip away the layers of an onion, what do you find in the middle? Well, nothing, just more onion. Um, in other words, the, the onion is the layers. The onion is the relationships. It's the commitments. It's the things that you that, 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 that make you up as a person. And so therefore, I think where, where, the, um, where the longing leads us at the end of the day is precisely in those relationships and commitments that we make. It's in our particular roles that we play as fathers, mothers, children, husbands, wives, partners, friends, citizens, it's in those very, like, that's that's who we are as, as people. Um, we are con constituted by the relationships we form, um, the relationships we form with other people, but most of, most, most of all, by the relationship we form with God. And we are human, we are as human beings made to flourish in relationship with the God who gave us life. And therefore, um, that I think is where the longing draws us to places that are maybe not expected, to those places where we work, the places where we worship, the places where we are in relationship, our homes, our families. It's in those very relationships, not somehow abstracted from them, that we find our true identity and our, our true selves. And then that can be hard work, you know, giving yourself to building a family or a marriage or a, um, or, or, or a church or a sort of community. That can be hard work because, you know, we're all difficult as people. Um, it's not easy. But actually, it's in those very commitments, in those very relationships that we find our true selves, it seems to me. And uh, you know, I think we're, we're longing for a sense of community in, in, in our society. We find it difficult to do it, but that's precisely where I think the truth is to be found, both in our relationships with each other and our relationship with God. Mm, interesting. I like artichokes a lot, but um, peeling <laughs> artichokes is not life-giving. Um, I like onions too. Of course, that's easier, but that that, that has its um, issues as well in yeah. terms of feeling Cut, them. Cutting up onion, onions is not great experience. When you... That's not great. Um, yeah, exactly. yep. Augustine and and that phrase mm. in yourself, you rouse us, giving us delight and glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal, and our heart is restless mm. until it rests in you. It seems mm. that that is a very um, helpful summary of some of what you are describing just now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I often think most of a, most of my thoughts go back to Augustine at the end of the day, and he sort of <laughs> lurks behind most of them because um, he's someone who understood human beings in an extraordinary way. And it's very, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because he he um, you know he wrote the Confessions, which is this um, which in one sense is an extraordinary. Um, self-examination he looks into his own motivation and his own understanding and, and all his experiences in the past but he does it not to find himself but to find god um which is a very different way of uh, of approaching sort of um introspection so this isn't saying that you, know, you should not be introspective at all you shouldn't think of yourself um and examine yourself but it's having a realistic view of the self um and in some ways what what, what augustine does is when he looks inside himself is to kind of he does it in conversation with god and so um, there is a there is a, a proper love for oneself. Um, you know, Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a proper self regard. There's a this isn't a good counsel to to kind of abuse yourself or not think about yourself and making sure that you you know you have all the um, you know the things you need in life for food and shelter and housing and all those things. But I think loving the neighbor is is not is to is to realize that I have just as much a responsibility to make sure my neighbor has those things as as, as I have. And it seems where, where we go wrong is in our focus on ourselves. I'm going to make sure I've got all the things I need. And then if I've got any spare capacity left, I might think about my neighbor. Um, mm. Or actually, it's somehow the other way around those things. Yeah. It's really interesting. I remember years ago, someone saying to me, if you want to understand what it is to be a human being, you start not with looking at human beings, but start with God. Yeah. And then f from 
if you like that perspective, then we understand ourselves and ourselves mm. in relation to him and ourselves in relation to creation. But that's counterintuitive. It's countercultural yeah. in our own cultural context. Mm. Graham, you've spoken about everyday life. You've spoken about work and, and worship. And of course, work can be part of our worship. But mm. how does this work out practically? If, if I discover um, what it is to be truly myself and discover that that is to be discovered not by looking inwardly, but by looking to God and looking to the person of Jesus and discovering in Jesus that he is one who self-empties himself. So in a sense, he is the model for how to be fully alive, how to be truly free. Um, how does that cash out in terms of my everyday work, my life, and um, what it is to live within my community? What would some of the practical aspects of that look like, would you say? Well, I think I'd go back to some of those um, practices that sound very ordinary um, and, uh, and seem like a bit of routine things, but they're really quite important to do, which is... Um, those practices of prayer, the reading of scripture, the practice of worship, is a crucial part of it. I think the, more, more than that, I think it is, I mean, when you think of your work, for example, um, I guess people listening to this will do all kinds of different sort of jobs and professions and whether it's, you know, whether it's working, living at home, looking, looking after a family, whether it's out being a, a lawyer or a bus driver or a mechanic or whatever it might be. Um, and I think it's part of it is, is 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 learning to think about your work in the context of what it does for your neighbour. Um, because we can think of work as well. Work is a way in which I earn enough money to make sure I get you know, go on good holidays and my family are well fed, and it's basically a sort of slightly self serving thing. Um, but it seems to me you can you can think about work in a different kind of way. So if you're a if you are involved in healthcare, for example, it's not just a job. It is something by which you are bringing health to others. If you're involved in, in the legal profession anyway, it's about bringing justice to people. If you're a, if you are a, a, a bus driver, you are enabling people to actually encounter, you know, to, to travel from one place to another, to find, you know, to create relationship with the people that they're traveling to or whatever. And so it's focusing on those elements of, of, of your work that actually serve the neighbors. And, you know, one of the things that John Calvin used to say is that, you know, work is one of the primary ways in which we love one another. You know, in the work we do, we are offering love. That's kind of the way society works by the work work we do. So I think that's one of those those things we can do by practically focusing on those parts of our work when we genuinely are serving the communities in which we're placed, and really focusing on those bits of the job, um, rather than just thinking of it as a sort of means of of earning money or even as a means of you know an arena for evangelism. It can be that as well, but the very work that we do when we're seen through that lens of the way in which we serve our community and we love one another. Um, and it's something which we we then kind of offer to God. And I guess one of the uh, other practices in worship is that practice of being able to kind of take the work that you do and, if you like, offer it to God as a as an offering of worship. Explicitly, you know, every morning when you pray or in Sunday on, on, in church, just to say, like, here's what I've done this last week, and I offer it to God as an act of worship. So those are some of the practices, I think, that can flesh this out. Hmm. I suppose in a globalised context as well, there's no limit to our neighbourhood, is there? That, hmm. Um, you know, potentially the relationship um, between the rest of the world and me is, is is closer than it's ever been. And and my actions impact the lives of others, even if they're thousands of miles away. Um, and so having that mindset could have all sorts of implications, but also very radical, far-reaching implications. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I think all our, again, we're used to thinking of ourselves as autonomous individuals who are kind of self-referential, but when you begin to see yourself as part of a of a vast network and web of relationships, both locally and increasingly globally through social media and through globalization and so on, then it begins to you begin to realize everything you do has an impact on others, and anything you allow into your own heart forms you as well. I think that's one of the other aspects of this is that you know we're always being formed in our characters by one way or another. And I think when I'm when I'm asked the question, you know, who are you? You, you meet someone new and they say, well, who, who are you? Uh, and if, if you were to really go philosophical on this question, you might come up with all kinds of answers. But part of the answer is, well, I, I don't know yet. I don't know yet who I am. I mean, there's a text in, I think, is it 1 John, where it talks about how, um, how uh, you know, 
what we what we shall be has not yet been revealed. Now, we are being formed all the time. The question is, what are we being formed by? And so one of the practical ways in which I think this plays out is being quite watchful and careful about what is forming you as a person and what you allow into your heart, what kind of videos you watch on YouTube, what kind of things you, you, you find yourself reading, um, what kind of things you allow to kind of enter into the, the very depths of your, of your soul, because that will shape you for better or worse. And therefore making sure that what forms you, what you allow into your soul is stuff that is good and healthy and, and life-giving and um, turns you outwards rather than making you self-obsessed or, or, or obsessed on stuff that is actually going to destroy you in the end. So helpful. I know for myself, there are times when, when I think without even realizing it, we can just be absorbing things all the time, whether that's on social media or on TV. Yeah. And um, I won't name and shame myself for the the, the um the the certain TV show that I've been watching recently. But by the end of the series, and I, I confess I did watch the whole series, I did have a moment where I thought, gosh, I feel like not only was that a rather waste of my life, but actually I can even just some of my thought patterns or um the way I view other people or yeah, maybe even judge other people have actually come from sitting and watching yeah. X TV show. And so I, I totally would agree with that. Um, I also love that the idea of responding to somebody when they say, who are you with the um, with the phrase? I don't know yet. I, I think I might try that at some point to see. <laughs> it will either be a great conversation starter or a real like jarring. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Graham, thank you so much. Um, it's been really inspiring, but also I think challenging in a positive way um, chatting to you today. Um, I wonder maybe if you want to tell us um, what are you currently working on? Um, yeah, what would you like to share with us about what um, yeah life for Graham looks like currently? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, as um, Paul was saying at the beginning, I, I'd now uh, run a thing called the Centre for Cultural Witness, which is um, seeking to, to retell the transforming um, story of Christian faith in public life and doing that alongside many others as well. Uh, we run a, a new website called seenandunseen.com. So it's from that line in the creed, maker of, God is the maker of all things seen and unseen. We're interested in the seen things, you know, law, politics, economics, business, across the living crisis, Israel, Gaza, war, everything. Um, but seeing those in the light of the unseen realities of, of, of that, um, that Christian faith reveals to us. And so it's, you know, articles on just about everything you can think of from a Christian perspective, helping to explain aspects of Christian faith and so on. So, so that's something I'm, I'm um, uh, quite involved in at the moment. Um, we do some training in, in, um, uh, in, 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 Sort of public witness for, for a number of different people as well. I'm also working on a book, which is a, a biography of um, one of my favourite people, who is um, uh, Blaise Pascal, a great 17th century French genius of various kinds. He's a fascinating man. And um, so I'm spending a lot of time thinking about him as well at the moment. So that's kind of what I do. Brilliant. Well, you can find out um, more about the Centre for Cultural Witness by going to their website. Um, and um, yeah, also um, do check out Seen and Unseen. Um, yeah, as Graham said, for articles giving a Christian perspective on a whole range of topics. Um, so yeah, Graham, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Um, goodbye. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Paul. Very good to be thank here. Thank you so much, Graham. It's been great. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you. So, Paul, what did you think of our conversation today? How did you, um, yeah, how did you feel hearing all about um, our true self and what that is and isn't? Well, who are you, Grace? That's what I want to know. I mean, <laughs> I thought I was progress. beginning to know, but I didn't. it's really interesting because, um, I mean, I think probably for a lot of conversations, it would kill the conversation. Um, but it is also true, isn't it? That, it you is. know, I am becoming someone and part of the person that I become is through the interactions I have with others. And um, as I grow in Christ-likeness, as I seek to be a follower of Jesus. Um, so I think it's, I mean, that's true, isn't it? And that, mm. I think, kind of helped take us then forward to the sort of the ultimate act of the Christian story in terms of new heaven, new earth, new creation, where I'm known and where, I, where I'm able to love as I'm fully loved and know as I'm fully known and, mm. and be fully myself in the way that I'm, created so I thought that was um really interested I'm re re really interesting I'm really interested to know what you've been watching on television Grace that's 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 we're on tenterhooks what was what well, was that if people have made it this far in the episode it would seem rude not to tell them wouldn't it 
I think um, it was. I, I, yeah, I shamefully watched all 30 episodes of the last um, Married, at, Married at First Sight UK, which was both thrilling and terrible all at once. And I vow to myself that I'm never going to watch it again, but we shall see when the next series comes yeah. out. You can ask me again then. Um, I mean, no, but in all like... seriousness, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, terrible, terrible stuff, but it does just the way that, the cast talk to each other the way they view life the kind of flippancy of which they um yeah interestingly speak about things like love actually um it's yeah it's kind of it's scary how without kind of checking yourself you can start to you know give yourself or give a little commentary or your own two cents on on what's going on and actually probably in ways that aren't fully aligned with what I really believe but you can start to mimic and I suppose that's what part of what Graham was saying isn't it whatever we're exposing ourselves to if we're not conscious we can start to mimic what's around us and if that isn't of god um that has an impact on us um yeah. i also feel like um i don't know maybe god's trying to tell me something this week about artichokes because on this same trip to <laughs> devon that i went to we actually we had a pub lunch and um there was a whole artichoke as one of the starters. So anyway, we ordered this thing. I have to say, I love artichokes. I never quite realised how much work, as you say, is involved in it's a nightmare. peeling back all those days. And if I'm totally honest, I actually found the inside kind of disappointing. <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> it's so small, isn't it? I know. I mean... and you're so, I've, I've only spent 20 minutes getting through this and this is my reward. So um, I, I'm with, with Graham there, the onions, onions are the way forward. I remember there was a number of years ago, there was a, a brilliant uh, series. I mean, obviously, you know, it wasn't 30 episodes, like, you know, what you've just been through, which is amazing commitment. I mean, <laughs> but this was Rick Stein and he was doing okay, this yeah. um, program. I think it was it was in France, uh, probably South France. Um, and uh, it involved one episode and one recipe It involved artichokes. And so I was inspired as a result of that. And then went and and as you say, I mean, there's the work of peeling them, but then there's the result afterwards. It just seems that the the return of on investment, investment is not yeah. is not great, is it? I say um, buy the um buy the jar when it's in oil and it's already. I mean, to be honest, they're, they're just as good, aren't they? Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I thought the his the historical perspective found really helpful. Mm. Um, so sort of Plato, Aristotle, um, and then if you like, what's happened more recently? I thought that was kind of insightful helpful in in terms of us kind of understanding both where we are at in our cultural moment but also how did we get to where we're at yeah um and i suppose i'm kind of it just also reminded me of of how we are formed and also deformed by the cultural influences around us mm -hmm. and of course we're not only if you like subject to those but we can be complicit with those we can be part of the problem as well as part of the solution um to those things um but i think ultimately the thing that sort of will live with me is this idea that if i'm to discover my true self i i really only discover that, that in relation to others mm. and ultimately in relation to god as creator um and that's not surprising because that's how we're made and that's what being in the image of god in part is about um yeah. but a lot of that is um, in lots of ways, countercultural. At the same time, maybe there's an opportunity within this cultural moment uh, to present and model some of that because there is this restlessness mm -hmm. and this um, lack of satisfaction uh, with with what is. And 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 also there's other places. I thought it's kind of interesting. We could have gone into more of that, couldn't we? About the different places we go to discover our true selves, but ultimately. Mm -hmm you know, even for, for all the good that's out there, there's a, there's dissatisfaction about kind of ultimately where that leads. It's it's not great, is it? So so maybe that's that's an opportunity for us. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting actually how some of when we sort of asked Graham about um, you know, what does some of this stuff look like in practice, you know, how can we healthily go about trying to find our our true self, i.e., you know, how do we get into that environment where we are aware of of God and God the creator and how that is in us um and actually and I, I don't mean this rudely but actually none of it was kind of groundbreaking but actually it was still really powerful wasn't it in the sense of you know it comes back down to you know worship prayer time with other Christians and I think 
even that as a Christian still feels countercultural sometimes, you know, even the whole practice of going to church, you know, I know that some of my friends who are, you know, very committed Christians, but actually going to church just sometimes falls lower down the list than maybe going to visit a friend or going out for a Sunday brunch, which sometimes feels a much more attractive option than sitting in a cold church for two to three hours. But, um, but actually that it's in that it's in those spaces where we, yeah, as he said, you know, we meet people that are not like us. We see God in others. We, we kind of, we are in those corporate spaces where, you know, I know for myself, I do find, you know, sort of sung worship, a really helpful way of not only connecting with God, but actually putting all of my life and my circumstances into perspective. And it is, it's amazing, isn't it? In those moments where whatever is going on around us by the Holy Spirit, we do just have this amazing freedom and ability to fix our eyes on Jesus. And then, you know, that Sunday when I leave church, I do feel less aware of all of my problems because I have spent that time in wonder. And I think that was a really helpful reminder of of the importance of those things. And they're not just habit. They're not just, you know, part of what a good Christian does. They are actually also part of forming us and therefore us discovering who, who we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, that, that part at the end, um, which I thought was, yeah, maybe something that we all need to think about. And, um, you know, especially at what we think about LICC in terms of how does our everyday life and work um, fit into the biggest, the bigger picture of, of God's narrative and mission. And, um, you know, when you ask that sort of question of, you know, whatever, insert your job, you know, how does this benefit my neighbor yeah. and actually that isn't just healthcare professions you know I th- i'm sure we could all find one aspect of our job which in turn contributes towards whether it's our neighbor or society as a whole and i think um I, yeah i just really love the way that he framed that and i think it was really helpful yeah i thought that was a massively significant insight and um, if you sort of kind of play with the idea a bit, imagine yourself in in any context thinking, what is the impact here on my neighbour? And then also recognise that my neighbour is not simply the person that I might be in direct contact with, but indirect yeah. contact with, yeah. then that potentially is transformational. Um, so I thought it was really, really helpful and also really challenging. And it's something I'll you know, continue to kind of reflect on and and hopefully live with. Mm. Um, and I think you're right about, um, you know, the way some of those practices, they, they kind of orientate and reorientate us. Yeah. So if we're, if we're becoming too uh, self-obsessed and if we're too quick to look inwardly for, for, for answers and also for freedom, um, those moments where we're reorientated can give a correction, can't they? And help us mm. then to look to God beyond ourselves and also to others and then discover there that kind of ironically, that's where there is true freedom. Um, and that's where we can discover what it is to be truly ourselves. Um, yeah, really, a very. Really, it's, it's always a really interesting conversation. A really brilliant um yeah, brilliant discussion. Um, and if you did enjoy this episode of The Whole Life, then we'd love you to subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know what you think and uh, maybe tell your friends about it so that they can um, listen in too. But uh, for now, until next time, um, that was The Whole Life and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.